Did you know Higher Ed's premier tech conference, Elucian Live, is almost here. Join industry leaders in New Orleans, March 26th through 29th. Discover insights and game-changing solutions to unlock possibility and drive student success. Register at elive.elucian.com. Epic. Three higher ed authors, 100-plus college and university presidents, dozens of actionable insights for academic leaders. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education, is now available on Amazon. Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to up on the EdUp Experience podcast, where we do what? What do we do? We make education your business. You knew I was going to say it, and therefore I did. Dr. Joe Salustio, back with you another episode. As we uh, see, you can't even tell what I'm saying anymore. All those words blend together. Um, I, I can skip a word and still come out on the other side because I've said it so many times, and you've listened so many times, and maybe you've even picked up Commencement, The Beginning of a New Era in Higher Education, the book that I just wrote with Kate Colbert where we took our first 125 presidents and we stuffed them all into a 500-page book and all their insights. It could have been 700 pages easily, if you ask me, but uh, we had to make some cuts somewhere. Thank you for your support. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We're like, I, I told my guest host today, who you, you've, you know him now, he's been on like a million episodes, and, and our guest here, that uh, we're like a shade, and I mean like so, so, so close to 250,000 downloads here in the middle of, uh, what are we, in February? Uh, we, we were talking like we, we would get to 300 by the 300,000 downloads by the end of the year. That's possibly going to happen like June. So we're going to be about six months ahead of the pace, which is all thanks to YOU. That's you. Uh, we very much appreciate your support here at Up, and we will continue to bring you the most innovative leaders in higher ed and some of the co-hosts leading the conversation. And I have one of those gentlemen with me today. Ladies and gentlemen, here he is. He is the one, the only Douglas Carlson, head of business development, partnerships and strategy at Lead Squared, all within the time that it takes to clap. I got it all in, Douglas. How are that you? Is, I'm doing really well. That's super impressive. I, I was just thinking, I am, I am remiss that this is, all, is a podcast and there's no visual, because I would get you the 250,000 balloons. Oh, yeah, well. I would appreciate it. Um, I, I, I practice this. I just want you to know. I hit the button. I go, the Douglas Carlson, uh, head of business development, partner strategy at Lead Square, just so I could all get it in before the crowd stops. I literally practice this day after day after day, and I think I've gotten it. Um, but enough about you, Douglas. This isn't about you. Um, we've, we've talked about you all the time. This is about our guest. Um, there's, if you could see it now, ladies and gentlemen, I have to tell you, He's literally sitting in a room and there are three doors behind him and I'm not sure which one to pick. He's gonna tell us he is the one and only Dr. Greg Jones. He's president at Belmont University. Greg, what's behind door number two now? How are you? <laughs> it's Monty true, Hall. there's three doors behind you. Monty Hall or Wayne Brady, I'm not sure which, depending on how old you are. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Uh, what a, what a cool thing those three doors. I'm not sure if there's like a mirror thing going on there, but that is pretty <laughs> awesome. Whatever's happening, uh, Greg. Greg, tell us about Belmont University. Where are you guys? What do you do? How do you do it? And we'll go from there. Well, we're a university in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, we are a, a little over 130 years old, founded by two two women school teachers from Philadelphia 
was our predecessor institution, Ward Belmont, and it became Belmont College in 1950 and then became Belmont University in the 1990s. We're an institution that's seen a lot of growth over the last 25 years. We're continuing to grow. We're about to launch a new college of medicine uh, next summer that will uh, be uh, another college uh, for us. And uh, we've grown from about 3,000 students 20 years ago to 9,000 students today. And we're really excited about the future. So uh, t talk about the present day. How's growth? How's interest in Belmont University? You know, we have a lot of noise around college degrees and value yeah. and tuition and blah, 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 blah. You, I don't need to tell you what those arguments are, but how 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 are things? How's enrollment at Belmont? How are the students, and is there interest in in a degree? We've been growing in our applications every year, and our enrollment has been uh, growing. So, uh, in a time when uh, a fair number of uh, people would say higher education is in a sell mode, we're still a buy. And uh, part of that is because we uh, are in a great city. Nashville is a dynamic city; it's growing. Uh, we have had a long-standing emphasis in music and entertainment business. That's our largest college, and Nashville is a pretty good place uh, for that. Uh, we also have uh, a lot of work in healthcare, hence our new College of Medicine to complement uh, health sciences and nursing and pharmacy. And so we've got uh, a wonderful portfolio of uh, colleges, which is also excellent. If one uh, discipline or vocation is uh, declining in enrollment nationwide. Others tend to be picking up. And so that helps us uh, overall. And we're continuing to see growth and excited about that for Belmont and for Nashville. I like your style, dude. <laughs> yeah, you might recognize that voice in that movie. Um, talk about your mission a little bit, because, um, you know, it's, it's important at this point. I think it's important to, obviously, it's your mission, but it's important to the message you're putting out there as a Christ-centered institution, um, what that means in this day and age in particular, and why that's important to, uh, to you and, and to the students that come to Belmont. Yeah, we were a Baptist college for uh, from 1950 until about 2007 and separated from uh, the Tennessee Baptist Convention. But rather than doing what has been the trend in higher education, and that's kind of uh, drifting toward a post-Christian uh, identity, we doubled down on that uh, as an ecumenical Christian university. And when I became president a year and a half ago, we looked at the, the framing of our mission, which was a student-centered Christian community. And my wife actually was the one who noticed it and said, you know, I'm not sure we should be student-centered. A lot of undergraduates already think they're the center. Maybe we should be Christ-centered and student-focused. And so we changed the framing of our mission to say we're Christ-centered, and that means that we're accountable uh, to Christ. And that uh, gives us a transcendent focus that I think is really important, particularly in a day when people aren't quite sure uh, what the term Christian means because it's become politicized in that sense. But to be Christ-centered, we want to be really strong in our center. Uh, and that also means we can be uh, very welcoming and hospitable around the edges. And that's a really crucial focus for us uh, at Belmont. Do you think, Douglas, before I pass it to you, I do want to ask this one, because we have such a um, as you know, politically and religiously charged culture right now. Do you think that students who are uh, uh, who are focused, Christ-focused, Christian-focused, are looking for like-minded individuals as they go to school, uh, uh, for others that believe the same way, so that they aren't, I don't know, maybe don't feel like they're ending up in an environment where their views or leanings are going to be vilified in a society that is pretty good at doing that right now. Like, we're pretty good. 
yeah at tearing each other apart and not so great putting each other together is that why you think you've seen growth well i do think that uh having um a strong focus as we do on faith matters i think it also matters that we are emphasizing character we have a wondrous diversity of students uh, we also have some students who are uh jewish or muslim as well as students of uh no faith and uh we welcome anyone but that strong coherence i think matters and the fact that we exemplify it i love that we've got students uh, from across the theological spectrum. We have Catholics and Pentecostals. We have people who are more progressive in their faith. And, and we want to be a place that uh, that honors that uh, diversity, but also has a strong center. And uh, so that's what uh, we're aiming toward. And we want to be a very hospitable place for all of our students. And I do think that having a shared sense of purpose and focus really does matter for us as a, as a university. Douglas. Now it's your turn. Yeah, well, and and I kind of want to zoom into you a little bit. I'm I'm curious. You were uh, you were at the Duke Divinity School. What what made you interested in coming to the presidential role uh, at Belmont? Like, what attracted you? How did that kind of how did that story go? Well, I had uh, I was serving a second stint as dean of the Divinity School at Duke. I'd uh, been in university leadership and then had been doing some uh, other work with foundations around the world as a strategic advisor and had kind of decided I didn't need to do anything else. And uh, then I got a call inviting me to consider Belmont. And I said, what are you looking for? And they said, uh, someone who's Christ-centered, innovative, and likes to build. And I thought, ooh, that sounds like me. Uh, and I started learning more, uh, have loved Nashville as a city. It's a great environment. And then learned about the kind of energy and nimbleness of Belmont uh, oh, as a university yeah. it was really looking toward the future and wasn't just stuck in uh, the past. I, I think a lot of higher education, unfortunately, is still preparing for 1995 in case it comes back again. Yikes. And uh, at Belmont, people are really looking to the future. And that really excited me because I'm really inclined toward uh, future-oriented work. Oh, I love that. And I think that, that dovetails well because it sounds like Belmont has already had a lot of momentum. You mentioned that, you know, you've grown from 3,000 to 9,000. What does building mean? So does that mean new students? Does that mean new programs? Does that mean new modalities like, you know, hybrid, online, et cetera, et cetera? It's probably all of it, but I'm really curious what building means for you. All of the above. Um, it, it also means reconfiguring uh, our current disciplines. I've told the deans of all of our colleges that the one thing I'm pretty sure is of is that none of their colleges will look the same 10 years from now. That's the 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 thing I'm sure of. The, I've told them also, unfortunately, I'm not sure what they will look like. But if you think about it, uh, the <gasps> major challenges we face and the kinds of roles that uh, current students are going to be uh, occupying over the next 10, 20, 30 years, a lot of those jobs don't exist now. And the great challenges don't exist, don't sit within any one discipline or any one college. And so we need people coming together uh, and working together. We launched a year ago uh, a Belmont Data Collaborative, and it doesn't sit only within computer science. I wanted our, our Data Collaborative to work across all of our uh, majors and all of our uh, disciplines and colleges because data is reshaping so much about the broader landscape of work. And so I didn't want it just sitting in computer science. And in fact, the guy we appointed came out of business analytics. And one of the things he emphasizes is storytelling. 
when I talked to Oracle's bringing a big campus to Nashville, and I was talking to some of their leaders, and they said, we don't need coders, because by the time they come to us, we'll be retraining them anyway. What we need are people of character who know how to use data wisely, and we need storytellers because you, you know, data doesn't do much good unless you know how to tell stories with data. And so that kind of infusion across the campus is part of what it means to build. It also is involving new modalities, hybrid online opportunities. Um, and I also think that one of the things that higher education really needs to look at is uh, the kind of uh, dynamics of learning throughout life. We've got a supply chain issue in K-12, and we also have the kind of need to, to really do exec ed, or it's a broader kind of continuing perpetual learning uh, because everybody in any vocation is going to need to continue to retool and upskill throughout life. And the current model of higher education is people get degrees and then they become alumni and we provide sports for them, uh, largely to keep them connected so they'll give money back to us rather than recognizing that uh, education is about learning throughout life. Douglas, it looks like you're going to go, but I, I got to – okay, I got to ask because um... – um, boy, you said just like so much. I, I was my brain was going ding, 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 ding. And um, I'm going to go backwards to the point where you say to your deans at the colleges, hey, a lot of the work you're doing right now needs to change. And, and you get this. You can't handle the truth. <laughs> because change that you're you're saying it very nonchalantly, which is what I love. It's like, but you get you put that inside a higher ed capsule. Um, and I've said higher education likes to have an assimilation culture where it's like, you got to do it this way and you got to go a little bit slower and you got to go through this process and it kind of kills innovation in the builder. It kills the builder in people a lot of times. Um, how do you stay fresh and how do you get through that change management, which is basically a huge part of your job as the visionary of the university? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And, you know, Machiavelli 500 years ago said, men like new ideas only when they have long experience of them. Uh, and so, you know, this isn't a new problem and uh, th that we're dealing with. Um, one of the things I, I've really emphasized is that we use the wrong metaphors. Most of our metaphors for organizations like universities uh, is uh, are mechanistic. And so we have organization charts. And then if, if you have a mechanistic metaphor, then you're likely to say the, the choice is change or no change. And people will prefer no change mm -hmm. in those circumstances. But if you use as your metaphor instead organic metaphors or ecosystem metaphors, things are always changing. You're either growing, decaying, declining. Some things are decaying while other things are growing. You need to prune things. And when you have that as the metaphor, then the question is not, are we going to change or not? It's just what kind of change are we going to have? And is it going to help everything flourish? And so, you know, in an ecosystem, there are some things dying some things needing to be pruned and other things that are needing to be planted and, and grow. And once you begin with those kinds of metaphors, then the question you've got to persuade people, not is, are we going to change or not? It's just, is the change we're going to do going to be life-giving? And that then is really energizing. And there'll be people who are on, you know, the typical bell curve. You've got your early adopters and people who are ready to innovate and change. And you've got the people who are at the other end uh, lagging behind. 
but I think you can actually create an environment. And, you know, I don't tend to like to emphasize the fear-based reasons for change, which is, you know, there's a demographic cliff going to hit in a few years and uh, all of those kinds of issues or talk about the crisis of confidence in higher education among a lot of parents in the U.S. If you look at the various statistics, I want to focus on how we can continue to get better and be more nimble to prepare our students for the jobs of the future and to be the kind of people and leaders that the world needs. I love that, right? The difference between change or no change and organic shifting almost as it were, like soil is shifting. I, I really yeah. like that that analogy. That's good, Douglas. Yeah, no, the, the better metaphors piece, I think is, is just spot on. Uh, well, and, and to the point of like things that will help help you enable your metaphor. I think, I think the, the data uh, the data piece you talked about is so important. Can you tell me, or can you tell us a little bit about how you're thinking about it? Like, is this sort of a data pool that the whole idea is this becomes a shared data resource where people can ask thoughtful questions against? Do you already have sort of the five things you're trying to understand from the data? You know, how, how or if it will that enable kind of where you want to go with the university? Well, we want to we want to be focused uh, uh, on a, a, what we call a God-sized dream. I say that, you know, you really want to have a God-sized dream for a university, and it means you lead by nausea, because uh, God always sets bigger dreams than you think you can accomplish, particularly with your present resources at hand. So what we really focused on was a, was a God-sized dream uh, to be the leading Christ-centered university in the world. We didn't just settle for the U.S. We decided to make it the whole world. Oh, yeah. Um, and, uh, then, you know, you say, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do about that? Uh, and so we identified five strategic pathways to help us start to make progress um, toward that. And those were all pathways that require people to work together to imagine different possibilities uh, going forward. You know, the first one is whole person formation, that we're not just brains on sticks, that we've got to be focusing on forming character that's about how people think and feel perceive and live. And so uh, that sense of whole person formation. Uh, the second one is data-informed social innovation to help regions thrive, to really focus on what's going to enable that transformation. The third is an integrative vision of health, not just the way nursing and medicine normally is taught, which is disease-based after the fact. What are the social drivers of health? Our fourth one is to cultivate hope and inclusive excellence to help reweave the social fabric, to bring people together and the fifth one, which I particularly love, is storytelling that inspires the world and amplifies truth, beauty, and goodness. Uh, you know, we've got yes. songwriters, we've got uh, uh, movie makers, we've got advertisers and marketers and fiction and poetry writers. I want us to be really uh, inspiring people with storytelling. And that uh, that's really crucial. Uh, for the future. And it means, you know, business people and creatives are coming together in uh, in really creative ways. Absolute truth, beauty, and goodness. Like that is, I think that's amazing, especially in a climate where it's so specifically outcomes driven. I think we're missing the point in a lot of cases is the jobs of the future and the jobs of even now aren't just about hard skills, but certainly that's important. But the yeah. imagination, the creativity to evolve is is an immensely hard skill to teach. And it, it starts with exactly what you're talking about is having an intention. Yeah. Well, and that's part of what I love about some of our STEM work and some of the work we're doing with data and computer science and linking it to storytelling. 
so that you've got the hard skills of knowing how to use data and working with big data in all sorts of ways. And then how do you tell stories with it? And that's not just through death by PowerPoint. The storytelling with data has got to have that kind of creativity and beauty associated with it. Ladies and gentlemen, can I have your attention? It's time for us to solve the puzzle of success in higher education. Get your ticket to Elucian Live for industry insights, powerful connections, and innovative solutions. From March 26th through 29th, join peers from around the world in New Orleans to unlock the possibility and drive student and institutional success. Learn more and register at elive.elucian.com. You know that the world of higher education is experiencing evolutions and revolutions. You want to be part of the progress. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education with insights from more than 100 college and university presidents will show you how. Get your copy of Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education now on Amazon right away. We think you're going to love it. It's amazing. I got to ask you, because uh, you said um, you said a, God, a God-sized dream. Is that the way you said it? Yeah. You start with a God-sized dream. Yeah. And you're a Christ-centered university, and you're the leader of this. And so for somebody that's not maybe not religious, they're looking at you right now and thinking about the words you're using. That sounds like there's just a lot of pressure there, not just to serve the stakeholders, but to serve the stakeholder, if you will, um, <laughs> yeah. when you're leading with God-sized dreams and you're talking about being Christ-centered and you're talking about leading an institution that has that uh, religious background, is there more pressure? Do you feel, because what's your energy level like? If you're leading a God-sized dream, oh boy, I feel like you got to have, you got to be just on your A-game 24-7, leading, providing that vision, and not just vision of where the university goes, but where the university puts out graduates and what they do towards that monster God-sized vision. So there's just like these other elevations. How do you stay fresh? How do you stay focused? How do you stay, I, I don't know, on the right path with the right amount of, right the, with the right amount of everything? Because it sounds like you need the right amount of everything to keep it going. Well, there is one sense in which you're right. It, uh, you know, I, I sometimes have joked with people that I should have said that our dream is to be the best university east of Vanderbilt and west of Tennessee Tech. You know, <laughs> that's that's something much easier to kind of uh, achieve uh, on that score. On the other hand, though, I think that uh, it, it's also incredibly freeing uh, because if God is the focus, it means I'm not. And if Christ is at the center, I'm not. And so there's a sense in which the attention is off of me and being needing to be uh, everything to everybody. And that focus really brings us all together. And I tell people in our community, you know, that uh, we're never going to be able to do this unless everybody from the people who are in our landscaping and uh, frontline kind of security folks who may be the first people who ever uh, somebody learns about Belmont from, uh, all the way up to uh, deans and uh, provosts and vice presidents and that sort of thing, we all have to come together. And it's that sense of uh, common purpose that is incredibly liberating. And one of the things I love is that because we have this shared purpose and this real coherent focus, it also brings people together. Our deans are so collaborative that it's just so inspiring to see that. And I just am energized by watching 
uh, all the talented folks around me. And so in many ways, you know, yes, it's a God-sized dream and we're all inspired. And so it brings out the best in us. I don't feel it so much as a burden as an opportunity to, to really dream. And then you've got to execute on the dreams. You know, one of the ways I, I frame it is if you have God-sized dreams that don't execute, you have a fantasy. If you execute without any dreams, you have bureaucracy. And too much of our world is shaped either by fantasy or bureaucracy. And we want to hold all that together. 100%. What, uh, what about your board? Can you talk about your board? I mean, you know, the, the, the ebb and the flow and the, pr to use your words, the pruning and the mixing and the growing, all of that takes, um, all of that takes an engaged community at the highest level. Can you talk about how important it is to have a supportive board when you're trying to make these transitions and, and grow? It's absolutely crucial. And when I first was considering whether to accept the position at Belmont as we were engaged in conversations, I wanted to understand uh, the board and, and whether it had a, a healthy culture uh, and whether they really would be part of that vision of the future. And I was really reassured by my conversations with people on the succession committee, which included a number of board members. I have the best board chair you could possibly ask for, a guy who was a significant leader, former CEO and chairman of HCA Healthcare, a large healthcare company based in Nashville. He's a bum. And he is just one of the, the best people uh, to interact with. He knows how to lead. He knows how to provide support. And he also knows the difference between management and governance. And so that has been crucial. I have uh, a, a board that I relish working with. They're available to me. We just finished a retreat where we had uh, some really bold strategic conversations. Uh, they're generous and supporting the, the vision uh, of where we want to go. And there are people, a mix of alumni and people who may have been parents or they got hooked by the heart, by the vision of what we're trying to do. And, you know, in a time when a lot of presidents are in combat with a board or the board itself is divided, I feel like I've got uh, an incredible group of people who are rowing in the same direction with me. And it's really propelling the boat in wonderful ways. I asked that because, and Douglas, before I pass it to you, I asked that because, you know, if you think about the state of universities today, and we always talk about internal, we talk about this process isn't fast enough, or we talk about how, you know, there just aren't enough students. And you think about if you're going to change how that elevates to the highest level to the board and the, the specific relationship between the board chair and the president, because if you can't get agreement to change, then you won't change. And the board is the catalyst many times for agree. They have to agree for that change. And to your point, the difference of managing and governing. Um, yeah, you can't, as a board manager, that, that's not the point of a board. It's to govern and to allow those folks to, to manage. But that is a critical uh, relationship that we probably should talk about more on this podcast, Douglas. But I know you have a question, but I, and I want to prepare the, uh, the entire audience for it because it's, uh, it's going to be a good one. Prepare <laughs> to be astonished. Okay, now go ahead and ask it. Well, I love you've no set pressure. out the, the vision really well. And now I'm curious about sort of the pillars to execute against it. So uh, where are you making investments? Are you, you know, do you have a building project? Are you looking at bringing new technology? You know, what are the things that ultimately takes you and gets you to this, uh, this God-sized goal, which is, which is very impressive and also lofty? Yeah, well, we do have building projects. We've got the medical school building and a new uh, Massey Center 
that uh, will be for design discovery uh, kind of uh, 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 work and data uh, co-working space. So we've got two buildings that are currently uh, under construction. We have a new performing arts center that just opened a year ago. Yes, we're investing in technology. We also just joined a new athletic conference that gives us uh, greater visibility and competitiveness, uh, the Missouri Valley uh, Conference. Um, what I would really stress is what we've focused on is we've got to, and I learned a lot of this from Clay Christensen and others in the business world, is you've got to both be, be sure you're managing your, your current business model, what we're calling operational excellence, with developing a skunk works to achieve aspirational excellence. And so I've got two teams and there's some crossover between the two teams. We've got to be sure that we're doing enrollment and education and everything that is our current model with absolute efficiency and effectiveness, delivering what we promise and making sure that's really high quality and that's investing in who we are today. And we've got to be working on uh, that God-sized dream and aspiring to new things. And so we've got initiatives in data, the innovation labs, educational innovation that's doing certificate and hybrid and online programs. Uh, the, we're developing now a story studio. These are all part of to get us to those, uh, those pathways to get us where we want to be while also executing in the present. So we've got uh, teams working together and you know, to, going back to that organic vision of uh, the organization, rather than an org chart, we have overlapping teams. And so we got lots of overlapping circles rather than boxes that are separate in a hierarchy. Sure, no, and that, that makes sense to work in the dual channels. Flipping the script, what are the things you're stopping doing that get you closer to that, that God-sized vision? That's a great question because you've got to be uh, sure that you can, uh, uh, that you're also pruning, uh, as it were. And so we're sunsetting some things. But uh, the first thing I did was actually uh, initiate a process that we called simplifying bureaucracy. And I asked everyone throughout the organization, what could we stop doing? Or what are we have, how have we created duplicate processes? Uh, whether that's been just because of mistrust or uh, never asking the question, do we really still need to be doing these things? And so uh, that process of simplifying bureaucracy has led us to a focus on a phrase that we say, impact over activity. Yes. But, uh, we're now, we're actually not having some of the same events we used to have because we uh, just do events so that we could check boxes. Yes. Did you do that? Yes. Did it have any impact on anybody? No. Well, then let's stop doing it. And so, you know, during homecoming weekend a year ago, I went to a bunch of events that weren't all that well attended, but every group got to check that they'd held an event. And I said this year, hey, let's do fewer events and have more people gathered at the ones where we do have them. And that focus on impact over activity has really been uh, important. It also saves money uh, because you're not just uh, you know, wasting food and drinks on gatherings that are poorly attended. And you're really trying to say, what are we trying to achieve and how do we align ourselves to, to accomplish that impact? I like what you said about uh, asking the question, what, you know, are we doing this two times? You know, let's, let's look at the value chain and make sure that each point of that value chain is providing value. And if, and if there's complications, let's explore that part of the value chain and figure out how we can drive efficiency. I always like in, in my role, I always ask, how long does it take? 
right? I think about it from a consumer perspective because we are in the information age and things do not take that long. You That's can right. do a lot of things. And I always say you could check your bank account right now and probably under 30 seconds. You can order a package on an online retailer site and it will be delivered to your home probably in the same day. You can do all of, you could go visit um, another country right now by using Google Maps or Google Earth or whatever. You can do anything you want. So why should higher education take as uh, longer than those things that even have more significance in some ways? Like you want to sign a mortgage for a, for a house, it could it could be on your desk. You could sign it and be under contract and under a five hundred thousand dollar house in two minutes. How long does it take, and how do we improve? How do you continually improve amidst the traditionalism? Isn't that it's a convergence? of traditionalism and new school thinking because the consumer is driving a lot of that yeah. faster, better, quicker, you know, uh, more accessible and they converge and there's this like cognitive dissonance moment. How do you innovate through that? Well, it's a great question. And I do think that the speed at which things are changing is really putting a lot of new pressure. I think that's part of the need for certificate programs and thinking of new pathways for people to learn uh, and to grow. Uh, and I think that that's gonna need to, we're gonna need to continue to adapt and evolve in, in those ways. One of, the, one of the other things I've just started talking with teams about is the difference between having a really nimble team that can execute and innovate and a team that's like little kids playing soccer where everybody's hovering around the ball. Uh, well, let's everybody has to be right there. And, uh, you know, nothing ever gets done because you got to wait till everybody's gathered around the ball. Uh, right, or find you, uh, a soccer, seven-year-old soccer game where they all just move in a big clump up and down the yes, field and no separation. Yes. Yeah. Nothing ever, you know, that's terrible. And, you know, you've got to have that, uh, 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 that ability as a team where you can pass crisply and you've got a lot of moving parts. And that's when a team really gels you know i i often will use because belmont's known for our men's and women's basketball teams that our men's team often leads the country in assists and it's because we play a spread offense and people are spread out they know how to pass the ball there's constant movement uh you got to be in great shape to play for us uh and that's where you score a lot because there's a lot of uh mutual understanding and we've got to get to that point where people are willing to make decisions and not, you know, death by committee. We can have long committee meetings uh, just to say, oh, we met and we didn't do anything, but we met. And we've got to move from those kind of long meetings or even worse, infinitely deferring the scheduling of meeting till everybody can be there. So everybody feels like they were a part of the decision and you forget the fact that you're actually trying to make a decision. You're actually trying to move and do things. A decision beyond planning the next meeting, of course. Yes, that's right. You can, you can call a meeting to plan the next meeting. Yes. I've, I've been, I'm, I have a couple of those. I've been in a couple of those where I'm, what happened? Nothing. We just scheduled one more meeting. Goes, oh no. Um, you think about that time build up too. And what could be done if you really were able to spread out your talents and drive towards something, uh, but all that takes a deconstruction and reconstruction of traditional systems that uh, typically don't like to be messed with. And that's, yeah, so that's one of the, the things one of the right. things I'd highlight with that is the importance of trust. Uh, 
If I trust you, we don't need to meet and spend a lot of time in negotiation because I trust you're going to bring your A game and you're going to do really well. And so everything functions really well. Most of our bureaucracies uh, originate because of mistrust. And so no, we've got to have a meeting because I don't trust your decision that you might make apart from me. And that multiplies throughout an organization. Then you develop workarounds because I don't trust you. So I'm going to uh, go to Douglas to try to get him to do it so that I, so that you don't mess it up. And, and all of those kinds of workarounds just burden the organization until it's just a completely clogged system. Mm. Douglas, do you have any last uh, questions for Greg yeah, before we wrap up? Yeah, well, one thing I'm really curious about, so you've already mentioned, mentioned Clay Christensen, which is, was obviously a wonderful person to study, understand. There's just so much knowledge there. Who else kind of inspires you? Who else do you read when you're thinking about kind of transformation? You, you know, you said you're a builder. Like, wh who are the people that inspire you and then you get kind of tools from? Um, just kind of curious beyond Clay. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, well, the first thing I do is I go and talk with people who are leaders in other industries because I want to listen to how they engage. I talked to a, a healthcare leader a number of years ago and I said, what are you reading? And I'll ask, what are you reading? And he said, uh, oh, I'm reading a book about how uh, the, uh, the, the British broke the German uh, spy codes during World War II in their U-boats. And this was when Obamacare was being debated and everything. I said, I thought you'd be reading about Obamacare. He said, oh, no, no. I thought I got lobbyists and, and advisors who were giving me briefings on that. I thought you wanted to know what I was reading. And I mm -hmm. said, why are you reading that? And he said, well, because that actually changed the entire course of World War II. And so you want to be thinking about those kinds of issues. I'll mention another book that I read last summer that's been really influential on me. It's by Safi Bacall, B-A-H-C-A-L-L. Uh, -L. It's called Loon Shots. And what the, the term loon shot is not just like Google's moonshots, because moonshots are the extraordinary thing you might try to achieve where everybody else goes, yeah, that'd be great if you could achieve it. A loon shot is that kind of uh, God-sized dream where when you say it, everybody goes, that's crazy. That wouldn't even be good if you accomplished it. It's the, <laughs> it's the kind of thing like what Walt Disney did when he said, hey, you could take animation and make a whole movie out of it. And everybody said, you're crazy. That's the dumbest idea. Nobody would ever watch that. Well, Fantasia comes along and it's done okay. And so has uh, a lot of other things, you know, that <laughs> you think about uh, today. And so that notion of loon shots, and then this goes back to that, what I was saying earlier about operational aspirational excellence because what Safi says in that book is you've got to have both artists and soldiers to make any organization work. Yeah. The artists are the dreamers who are imagining all sorts of things and you got to have the soldiers who are executing. And so those sorts of things begin to shape my imagination. Safi does, is not writing about higher education much, except when he criticizes uh, the higher education industry, you know, radar emerged in world war two, uh, but it was, it was blocked by, academic institutions. And so DARPA was created by the Defense Department, and it was blocked in part by the Defense Department itself, but academics kept saying, no, this wouldn't work. And, you know, there's lots of different research where established organizations try to squelch it. And so you got to have places and supporting systems to enable those loon shots. Uh, but I love learning from other organizations and, uh, you know, I've been, now that I'm in Nashville and we've got all sorts of uh, 
musical people who are graduates and friends of, uh, of Belmont that I'm often talking with them because I learn about the process of songwriting or about how you put a band together and it's about how you put teams together in other environments. That's amazing. Love it. Well, we like to finish every episode with the same two questions, Greg. Number one, what did we not say about Belmont University? Anything that you were hoping to bring up? Any speaking engagements you have? New programs? Anything you could possibly think of? You get to take a couple minutes on the mic and just say whatever you want about Belmont. Number two, close us out with what you think the future of higher education will bring us. Well, I would just say that I think uh, Belmont is an incredible community. And uh, I, I'll say that... Uh, one of, I, the theme we used for my inaugural year was let hope abound because we wanted to have something forward looking. And uh, I really began to realize that what people are looking for is not just people, but they're looking for institutions that are focused on the future. And so um, it, I, I like to say that Belmont's a place where hope takes shape in the world. And when I saw somebody downtown and he said, you're the president of Belmont. And I said, yes. And he said, y'all are the hope people. And I thought, oh, I'll take that, that we want to be a place that's really focused on the future in that sort of way, uh, developing programs and initiatives and helping to create a culture where people will feel inspired to become the kind of leaders uh, we need people to be for Nashville, for Middle Tennessee, for the country and the world uh, more generally. And so uh, it's an exciting place. And I feel really honored and privileged to to be a part of such an incredible uh, community of people that are focused on uh, letting hope abound and uh, having it take shape in the world. Uh, what I think higher education is going to bring, well, I'll say my, that my fear is, is that higher education is con con going to continue to lag the world and the, and the culture uh, and not provide the leadership that we need. What I really hope is that we're going to be able to adapt and be nimble to provide the leaders that we need in the 21st century. Uh, this on, on multiple fronts. I've been worried like I haven't ever been worried in the course of my lifetime about whether we have the leaders across the board and the institutions across the board that we really need to address the challenges that we face uh, in the 21st century. I remember 25 years ago, I was doing some work in South Africa, and as they were struggling with issues of a transition to democracy, I rather arrogantly said, we ought to just copy the U.S. because we figured it out. Well, uh, after January 6, 2021, I got an email from a friend of mine in South Africa said, how's that democracy stuff working for you all? What the uh, heck is going thought, on? You know, we, we, we've, got to, we've got to address these issues head on. We've got to do better. Uh, to prepare the leaders and the institutions that will help people discover life and discover life abundant. And that's going to require an awful lot of what I call traditioned innovation. Uh, so I'm hopeful about higher education uh, because it's really important. Education is what uh, prepares and equips leaders. Uh, but I'm also discouraged because I'm, I fear that the industry as a whole is going to stay too often in a reactive mode rather than being willing to anticipate the future and lead people into it. Wow, what a great uh, ending. And, and you know what, that's like the reason we do this podcast. And that is the reason that we wrote the book so that we could bring people to the table like yourself, Greg, give you the microphone, let you hit it across higher education. And maybe there's somebody sitting in the office going, you know what, I, I have a fear too that higher education won't move as fast. So because Greg said this, I'm going to go make this change at my institution or think about this thing just a little bit differently because somebody else is doing it and, and I have something to point it to. I have an I told you so moment that I can 
that I can create change with. And that's what we do here. And I'll tell you somebody else that helps us do it. And that's Douglas Carlson. You like that transition, Douglas? Of course, he is head of business development, partnerships and strategy at Lead Square. Douglas, thanks for coming back again, man. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I am so excited to uh, put uh, loon shots on my uh, my book reading list. That's great. <laughs> Good. Thanks to you guys for all the work you do. It's great and really exciting and appreciate the opportunity to be on with you today. There he is, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Greg Jones. He's president of Belmont University. And with that, you've just ed up. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for some um, um, amazing news. It's time to work together to solve the puzzle of success in higher education. Belusian Live returns to New Orleans for March 26th through 29th to help you unlock possibility for your institution. And yes, the EdUp experience will be there recording live. Industry leaders from all across the world are converging to discover new insights, game-changing solutions, and powerful connections, all with the goal of addressing higher ed's greatest opportunities and biggest challenges. You do not want to miss Elucian Live. Learn more and secure your seat today at elive.elucian.com. It will be um, um, amazing. It's time to level up. The beginning of a new era in higher education begins with you. Order your copy of Commencement. The beginning of a new era in higher education by Kate Colbert, Dr. Joseph Lucille, with contributions by Elvin Freitas. It's higher education's must-read book of 2022. Discover how you can seize the moment to change higher education forever. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education, now available on Amazon. For bulk orders, contact Kate, Joe, or Elvin. 303-566-6666.